seated. Today we return to Colossians chapter 3, where we've been for quite some time. So I invite you to turn to that in the New Testament, it's page 984. Andy and I are a team teaching through uh, Colossians. Now next Sunday, Elliot Everett will be preaching, and we will have a uh, report from Covenant Care Services, Christian Adoption Agency here in Macon that is an associated ministry of our church. Uh, and Elliot's going to preach um, about the uh, subject of spiritual adoption, right? He hasn't changed your mind, have you? Okay. And I look forward to that. I'll be assisting with Elliot. And uh, then we'll, Lord willing, plan to return to Colossians uh, after that for a couple of weeks before we come to our missions conference. And then we'll have our missions conference. Then we'll return to Colossians again. <laughs> Maybe by the summer we'll be through chapter 4. I know we've been in the third chapter a long time because this page is getting worn out in this Bible that's up here in the, in the pulpit. Uh, Paul is dealing with the question of what does it mean to live as a believer? What does it mean to call Christ Lord uh, over all of life? And uh, he, he spent the first two chapters of this, this brief letter, it's got four chapters, he spent the first two chapters talking about the preeminence of Christ, that he is the firstborn over all creation, he's Lord over all. And when we come to chapter 3, he's, he's now saying, how do you live? And we live as those who've been uh, co-crucified, co-raised, co-ascended with Christ. When Christ who returns in glory, we will, we will be with him. And then we were told to put off uh, certain attitudes and actions. We're to put on uh, hearts of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. He said in verses 12 and following, we're to let the word of Christ dwell within us richly. We're to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts and uh, whatever we do in word or deed, we're to do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then we come to verses 18 through 21, and there's some verses addressed to the family. He's dealing with spheres of submission, and he's going to give some words to wives and words to husbands, and now today words to children and words to fathers. So follow along as I read verses 18 through 21, a brief section of Scripture. Wives, Submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. So ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, you tell us that that your word is is, um, uh, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. We ask that you would use it now toward those ends in our lives, regardless of our age or stage or situation in life. May we see application here by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, it's great to be countercultural, isn't it? Uh, because Christianity has always been countercultural. And it is, uh, it is uh, even more so now in our culture and will only continue to be so. Uh, it's always been that way. When Joseph married his, uh, his engagee, the woman to whom he was betrothed, and she was expecting a baby, that was countercultural. When Jesus talked with the woman at the well, the fact that it was a man talking to a woman, and even more so that it was a Jewish man talking to a Gentile woman, that had a cultural boundary between them, that was countercultural. When Daniel refused to give up praying 
to Jehovah God several times each day, that was countercultural. And today in the church, strangely enough, we're afraid to be countercultural at times. We believe to have an impact in our culture, we have to be identical to the culture and we have to modify our message and take out anything that might be offensive to other people, which they don't want to hear. But the, the futility of that is it doesn't work. And the Apostle Paul never did it. And he was the greatest missionary that's ever lived. The Bible says that in one generation, in one generation, they turned the world upside down for Christ. And Paul is unbelievably countercultural in that day. It was countercultural to t- tell a husband to lay down his life for his wife. Uh, in that culture, a wife existed for her husband. She had no legal rights of her own. Wives being a needed helper, completing the husband through godly submission was unheard of. Wives were property. And so we come to this section of Scripture that we may think, oh, that's just the way things were at that time. It is not the way things were at that time in history. I mentioned last week, if you were here, this is the second part of a two-part sermon, basically, uh, called Family Matters. But you can't really understand the New Testament teaching about marriage and family without understanding the creation of marriage and family, which goes back to the opening chapter of the Bible. Uh, the creation of everything in Genesis chapter 1 out of nothing. And he crowns, God crowns the creation there at the end of chapter 1 with the creation of man. And it says male and female, he created them in his image. And we are unique as people over all creation. He gave us a purpose to fulfill, uh, to fill the earth and to subdue it, to exercise dominion. Then in chapter 2 of Genesis, we have the creation of marriage. God said it was not good for the man to be alone. Now, here was Adam. He had a perfect relationship with God. Uh, Everything was perfect. Sin had not entered the picture yet, and yet something was wrong. And what was wrong is that it was not good for him to be alone. So God performs surgery on the man. He creates the woman. She's a helper suitable for him. And I told you last week, if you were here, that the word suitable or helper is a military term in the Bible which conveys the idea of the strong coming to the aid of the weak. So here God creates his helper in a complementary relationship so that they would be different and yet complement one another. And so the wife's place then was to join her husband in exercising dominion over the earth. Now just briefly by way of review we looked at verse 18 which was some words to wives it said submission is, does not mean that a wife is some sort of servile person rendering unquestioned obedience to her husband's every whim. Uh, it is the divine calling of a wife to aid and honor and affirm her husband's leadership and to help carry it out according to her own unique abilities and gifts as his God-given helper. I said that's what submission is. And then we looked at a word to husbands. Uh, where it told us in verse 19, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And I mentioned ways that love displays itself. A loving husband commits. He commits to his wife as Christ has committed to him. Uh, That if I'm to love my wife as Christ loved the church, then I must understand that love. I must receive Christ's love and experience that before I can show it to her. I mentioned the godly husband initiates. He, he takes the lead. He sees what needs to be done, and he initiates. And this is countercultural today. Where do we get this idea? We get it from the way Christ loved the church. We love him because he first loved us. He's the grand initiator in the Bible. And so 
in this area, he initiates in uh, financial responsibility and in spiritual development of the children and the marriage itself. And here was the best definition I have read of this love that a husband's to have for his wife. Love is the commitment of my will to your needs and your best interests, regardless of the cost to me. It's the commitment of my will to your needs and best interests, regardless of the cost to me. It's not conditional. Well, if you want to hear more of that, you can listen to that if you're so inclined on the website of the church. But let's move on now to verses, the next verses that deal with children and with fathers. Uh, briefly, in an economy of words, he just says this, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Well, my first question when I came to this passage is, well, who are children? What's the definition of a child? We know about a little child, but how, how far into life does this, does this apply? Are we talking about five-year-olds, ten-year-olds? Well, the word that's used for child there refers to a child still living at home under the, the guidance and responsibility of the parents. Uh, so it's a youngster, you might say, a child or a youngster. But, but they're, they're old enough to understand that these were epistles, these were letters. So Paul wrote to these people he had never met. And the letter goes by Epaphras, and Epaphras probably, or some, one other leader in the local church there in the city of Colossae, he would have read this. So we assume they were old enough, the children, to, under, to, to understand when it was read to them when he came to this part of the letter. Children, obey your parents in all things. It's a continuous, uh, obey continually. It's not a one-time uh, command here. So one of... And I realize some of you are parents, some uh, your kids are grown, some are not married, some are widowed, divorced, single, never married, teenager. There's application here for all of us. Um, but as a role, as a, one of my roles as a parent uh, will, would be to teach children then to obey and honor their parents because that will affect how they relate to every other institution the rest of their lives. Um, it, it is the major forming factor in your life is how you related in the family. Your style of relating now was set at the home, even today as an adult, when you act in ways you don't understand and you can't figure yourself out. Many times you're still reacting perhaps to your parents. And it certainly doesn't help marriage when one of the spouses reminds the other one that they act like their father or their mother or you remind me of this. And that. so just don't do that. Don't go there. I've told you before about Mike Krzyzewski. He's the coach of uh, the Duke Blue Devils, has been for 36 years. And a Hall of Fame coach, 12 times National Coach of the Year. He's Olympic national team coach, has won gold medals in 2008, 2012, and He's built a dynasty in NCAA sports that few programs in history of the game can match. But, but recruiting, like any college program, is a key part of the, that. And Coach K says that when they send out their recruiters to visit a prospective player, they intentionally set the meeting up in the player's home because they want to see how he relates to his family and especially to his parents because they know how he relates to the authority in the home will be how he will relate to the authority at the school. I mean, that's just common sense wisdom there. So why obey? It, it just simply, we know it's a command from the Ten Commandments, the Fifth Commandment, and also it says here it pleases the Lord. So if you're questioning God's will, 
uh, you know, here's, you may be praying about something and you're thinking, I think the Lord wants me to violently disobey my parents right here. I would say, no, God's already revealed his will there. Uh, it pleases him for you to obey them, of course, unless they're asking you to do something uh, sinful. Now a word to fathers. David Blankenhorn wrote uh, a book uh, about America, and he says this uh, that caught my attention. A generation ago, he writes, a generation ago, an American child could reasonably expect to grow up with his father. Today, an American child can reasonably expect not to grow up with his father. Fatherlessness is now approaching a rough parity with fatherhood as a defining feature of American childhood. The astonishing fact is reflected in many statistics, but here are the two most important. Tonight, about 40% of American children will go to sleep in homes in which their fathers do not live. Before they reach the age of 18, more than half of our nation's children are likely to spend at least a significant portion of their childhoods living apart from their fathers. Never before in this country have so many children been voluntarily abandoned by their fathers. Never before have so many children grown up without knowing what it means to have a father. Fatherlessness is the most harmful demographic trend of our generation. It is the leading cause of declining child well-being in our society. It is also the engine driving our most urgent social problems, from crime to adolescent pregnancy to child sexual abuse to domestic violence against women. Yet despite its scale and social consequences, fatherlessness is a problem that is frequently ignored or denied especially within our culturally elite discourse. It remains largely a problem with no name. These words are from a book called Fatherless America, and those words were written 25 years ago in 1990. So they're even more true today. And the term that's used to describe this trend, some of you heard it, is daddy deprivation. Daddy deprivation. So I know I'm speaking now to men, some who are fathers with small children, some are grandfathers, great-grandfathers, those who will be fathers in the future. We come from a variety of backgrounds per our relationships with our own fathers. Perhaps yours died when you were young. Perhaps you had a very close relationship with your father and still do. Perhaps um, maybe you're even estranged from them and were and are. Perhaps he abandoned the family. Perhaps he was abusive. Perhaps he was a great role model in every sense of the word. I'm trying, I make no assumptions. But here's the point. That would have been true in Paul's day as well. He was not being uh, overly idealistic. The same type issues would have been present then. And yet he gives these clear directions. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. I say this because many of us feel very inferior and unequipped to be fathers. And we think, I can't do it. Why? Because of my own family background or what, whatever my own relationship was with my dad. I, I just, I can't. And many men lack confidence due to their past experiences. And we need the wisdom of the word. And we need the patience of Job, and we need the kindness of Christ, and we need the power of the Holy Spirit, and we need any other kind of help that we can get a hold of. Uh, you've heard it said that a mature person learns from their mistakes. 
An immature person does not. But a very mature person learns from the mistakes of others. And I do that by reading books. And I read about other people's mistakes. You know, books that I'd recommend to the men here, like Richard Phillips, who's preached here, his book, The Masculine Mandate, or uh, the book by Eric Mason, Manhood Restored, How the Gospel Makes Men Whole. Uh, and I recommend a book that I saw promoted by Focus on the Family this past week, so I downloaded it to a Kindle. I read the first eight or ten pages, and I found it so disturbing, I just had to stop. It was true, and, and I need to read it, and it's called Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters. And what was disturbing was just what our daughters face here in our American culture. So Paul zeroes in on one key area. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. To provoke, or another translation, same word as exasperate. Uh, how do you feel when you're exasperated? How do you feel now, not just as a child, but how do you feel when you are discouraged, when you've been provoked to become discouraged? You just feel this is pointless. You've tried to solve this problem so many times, and it's like you can't solve it, and so you just give up. Or say, I've, I've tried to do this, I've tried to cha uh, change this, I've, I've tried to see this thing through, whatever it may be, in work or in school or in a relationship, and you just throw your hands up. That's what's being described here. A father can push the children to that point, can push a child to where they just want to throw their hands up and say there's no point. This is pointless. They are so discouraged. Sam Storms, in his commentary, says, an inflexible, judgmental, and demanding temperament creates despondency in a child's heart. Faced daily with harshness, children often simply give up convinced that nothing they ever do will be quite right or good enough to please their parents. And a similar observation was made by John Eady years ago. This is dated uh, vocabulary, but he, he nails it. He says, if children never please their father, if they are teased or irritated by perpetual censure, if they are kept apart by uniform sternness, if other children around them are continually held up as immeasurably their superiors, if their best efforts can only moderate the parental frown and they are never greeted with parental smiles, then their spirit is broken and they are discouraged. So parents, parents for the future, dads in particular, you have profound, scary power to build up or to tear down your children. You have profound power to encourage or discourage. And you can do serious good or serious damage to the emotional well-being of your child. And it can happen with the best of intentions. You may think, well, okay, I'm going to tell myself that this speech I just gave when I got in his face and I told him what his weaknesses and his faults are, that'll make him tougher in the future. And may, you, may, you may think you're preparing them for rough days ahead, but the process you just followed may leave scars that will plague them the rest of their lives. And no Christian father wants that to happen. And no father, period, I think, wants that to happen. So there are several ways, things we can avoid that are discouraging to kids. Just insults and criticism. Yeah, insulting them continually. Dave Simmons started King's Era Ranch. That was a Christian camp in, in southern Mississippi. And and he died years ago in a, in a car wreck leaving Atlanta. And, and I heard Dave Simmons, who was a, 
a professional football player, uh, that his, his father, he could just never measure up, never measure up. His father gave him a nickname, Stoop, for stupid. Called him Stoop all growing up. When he was drafted uh, number two behind Dick Butkus, who was number one, his father said, why weren't you number one? When Andre Agassi won Wimbledon, his father's first words to him is, why, why did you miss that certain shot? You know, I mean, we hear things like that. We, say, we cringe, and yet it, we do it ourselves, and sometimes not thinking about it. But we must avoid criticism or, or uh, insulting, insulting. Uh, I, I've got a pastor friend who's counseling a, a, a middle-aged woman with, with severe eating disorders, and her father, while she was growing up, in front of other people, always referred to her, kind of my little fat daughter. You know, and what kind of scars are left with things like that? Uh, a second, favoritism. Favoritism can be terribly damaging. Uh, not just you say, well, I only have one child. Well, favoritism in the sense of comparing them maybe to the relatives or other kids their age. Uh, in, in Genesis 37, we have the account, well, all the latter part of Genesis, about Joseph and his brothers. You remember his brothers sell him off. They were going to kill him, but they're talked out of it by Reuben, and they sell him off to uh, a caravan that takes him down to Egypt, and, and hopefully you know the story. But, but it tells us the root that was behind that in, in chapter 37. Now Israel, that was their father, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to them, to him. Were they responsible for their hatred? Yes. Was it wrong for them to feel this way about their younger brother? Of course. But it was provoked by their father's favoritism toward their younger brother. We can set unrealistic goals, never rewarding, never recognizing they need your approval. I grew up in a home like that. My dad, it was, if I, if I made an A, well, the test was easy. When I got accepted to seminary, well, they'll take anybody. Well, boy, that sure was hard getting through Hebrew and Greek. Well, that's nothing compared to law school. I told you you've got issues. Your pastor has issues. But we can set these things so high. I can tell you, and I had to tell my children this summer, that in a desire not to be insulting and have continual put-downs that I experienced all growing up, I swung the pendulum, and I said, I will never say anything insulting to them, but I detached emotionally. And I had to go this summer, and I'm just telling you all, I didn't even mention this at the first service. I went to each of my children and confessed and asked their forgiveness. But starting at a certain age, I could feel myself drawing back. And uh, so I certainly wasn't saying something insulting, but I just disengaged, even subconsciously. Not showing affection, that was number four on my list. I gave my illustration too soon. Number five, lack of discipline, inconsistent discipline, excessive discipline. Proverbs says, he who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is careful to discipline him. We're not talking about child abuse here, but, but proper discipline where the punishment fits uh, if there's disobedience, not punishment because they are in accordance with their personality. And I... I don't know who taught us, but my wife and I, we, we did not come from Christian backgrounds per se. So when we married and had children, we were, we were just trying to implement these things that we were being taught. But one was we were taught that your children have to heed you on your first command, not the third time. So we tried to teach them attentiveness 
And we weren't counters. You know what I'm talking about, Matt, right? One, don't touch it, Johnny. Two, look, we wanted to teach them obedience, not arithmetic. And so we, we were like, no, one, that's it. Here's the command, stop. Now I'll give you one example of where we saw that. Our, our daughter, Sarah, who was rambunctious and emotional and dramatic and everything. But here's one simple thing. You get, and this was pre-seatbelt laws. You get in the car, the seatbelt is on without questions, and you've got to work at that a long time. Well, I'm going to date myself, but some of you remember that GM station wagons, pre-minivans, pre-whatever, pre-crossovers, had the rear seat that looked out the back. So our son, if he, he grew up thinking the road went that way. So she's on Riverside Drive, and our daughter Sarah climbs to the back. And seconds later, wham, hit, she was at a complete stop tr service truck going about 45 miles an hour, hits the rear, smashes the whole end of the station wagon. As she tells me, she turned around immediately just thinking Sarah was dead because she was in the bay. It would have thrown her out the back. She put the seatbelt on the moment she sat down. Now, that's God's grace, obviously. But it's also training. And, and who's going to do that but parents? Uh, I, you don't care about other people's kids enough to do that, do you? And if you do, there's something wrong, <laughs> wrong with you. But we, uh, we care about our own. I must move on. And so we have to be students of our individual children, their personality, their temperament, their natural bent, their talents. You, you can glance at one child and they melt. You, you can talk firmly to another and they don't even hear you so you you have to to know them some are risk averse and we need to push them to step out in faith sometimes and take a risk others don't know where the boundaries are and they need to be reined back in uh, some may be expressive and show their emotions others are repressive and they hold all their emotions inside and you may need to sit down and say i want you to tell me what you're thinking and i'm not leaving here until you do tell me what you're thinking i want to know and you don't then judge what they tell you. But because I, I'm trying to be a student of this child. So you could say at this point, if you're not a Christian here today, well, there's nothing unique about this, Chip. This is common sense parenting, right? Well, now I'm getting ready to switch gears for just a few moments. And that is what's the opposite of discouraging a child. And, and I agree with John Piper. It's the opposite of discouragement. We want them to be happy and confident in, in Christ. Rather than being discouraged, we want them to be happy and confident and hopeful in Christ. Do you think parents or parents in the future or, or even grandparents here, do you think of ways to build their faith in God? Uh, how can I help my child find courage in God? Now, I was one of those who was influenced by a professor that influenced Christian ministry people all over the world, and he died a few years ago named Dr. Howard Hendricks. Dr. Howard Hendricks was an assistant pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia before he became a professor of Christian education at Dallas Seminary, and he, his influence is far and wide. And as a high school student, I got a hold of a book that he wrote on sharing your faith with others called Say It With Love, and he told a story in there that, that I want to read to you right now about how two parents tried to teach their children about answered prayer. And here's what he writes. 
He said, we had a lovely couple in Dallas a number of years ago. He sold his business at a loss and went into vocational Christian work, and things got really rough financially. There were four young boys in the family. One night at family worship, the youngest boy, Timmy, said, Daddy, do you think Jesus would mind if I asked him for a shirt? Well, no, of course not. Let's write that down in our prayer request book, Mother. So she wrote down shirt for Timmy, and she added size 7. You can be sure that every day Timmy saw to it that they prayed for the shirt. Now, after several weeks, one Saturday, the mother received a telephone call from a clothing store owner in downtown Dallas, a Christian businessman. And he said, I've just finished my July clearance sale, and knowing that you have four boys, it occurred to me you might use something we have left. Could you use some boys' shirts? She said, what size? He said, seven. How many do you have? She asked, and he said, twelve. Well, many of us might have taken the shirts, stuffed them into the drawer, and made some casual comment to the child, but not this wise set of parents. That night, as expected, Timmy said, don't forget, Mommy, let's pray for the shirt. Mommy said, we don't have to pray for the shirt, Timmy. How come? And she said, the Lord has answered your prayer. He has? Right. So as previously arranged, older brother Tommy goes out and gets one shirt, brings it in and puts it down on the table, and little Timmy's eyes are like saucers. Tommy goes out, he gets another shirt and brings it in. Out, back, out, back, until he piles 12 shirts on the table. And Timmy thinks God has gone into the shirt business. Now, even though this is old, Hendricks goes on and says, You know, there is a little kid in Dallas today by the name of Timothy who believes there is a God in heaven interested enough in his needs to provide boys with shirts. Your kids know that. That's fantastic communication. And so we as parents need to teach them to, to trust God. If they want to go on a mission trip and say, Well, I've got to raise support, don't say, Here, I'll write the check. Put them in situations where they say, well, all right, we're going to have to, you can go, but you're going to have to trust God to provide the finances. Uh, rather than holding them back, what spiritual lessons are we teaching them? We want them to find happiness in God, which means I must find my happiness in God. Um, how often, as a parent, say, look, let me tell you what I learned from Scripture today. Let me tell you how the Lord used this man in my life today. Don't hold those things in. Pass them on to your kids. Uh, we want them to be confident and courageous in God. Do they ever see you take risks for the gospel? When you're giving and that's one of the more risky things you're doing, saying, I'm going to give this to missions or to, to this ministry and I'm not sure where it's going to come from or how, God, how we're going to... Let them know. Let them see that. Pray about it in their presence. So we model these things before them. Not a day should pass. And I, I must tell you, this is the most convicting thing that I came across in preparing for this sermon. And I don't remember who wrote it, but in one of the books, he said, not a day should pass, fathers, that we do not pray for our children. They should have that assurance we're praying for them. Now, my mother prayed for me every day of her life, best I know. And when she died, I not only lost that relationship with a mom that I love so much, but I lost that prayer support. But my wife prays for me every day. In fact, I had somebody after they... After the 8 o'clock, the 9 o'clock service, say, I pray for you every day, Chip. Uh, and when I read that, I thought, I don't pray for my kids every day. And uh, I, with God's grace, that, that's changing uh, as of yesterday. Um, because to know that you're being prayed for, John Maxwell is a, was a Christian pastor and written books on leadership and had a brother that was far from God. He said they were 
they were playing golf together one day, and he said, uh, how are you doing with the Lord? I mean, these guys were in their 40s by now. And his brother said, oh, I'm not doing much. I'm not doing too well. And he was getting ready to tee off on a golf uh, on a golf tee. And he turned around and he looked at his brother and he said, but I can't get away from the prayers of mom and dad. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? I told you at Christmas time some about William Booth who founded the Salvation Army, he and his wife Catherine, and the opposition they faced at that time in history, how some of them were not only beaten up but killed. And uh, Booth had a heart for the down and out, for the fringe of society. And there was a man named John Starkey, and he was a violent criminal. He had murdered his own wife, then he was convicted of the crime, and he was executed. And the uh, civic officials asked William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, to conduct the funeral service for this man. And you can imagine no one wanted to do it. And Booth agreed, and he said he faced as ugly and hostile a crowd as he had ever seen in his life. And so as he is staring there to start, staring at this crowd to start this funeral service, his first words were these. John Starkey never had a praying mother. And I would add, and he didn't have a praying father. Now let that not be said of us. Let's, let's pray together. Father, you are the only perfect father. And we come to you as our model. And we pray that we would look to Christ as our Redeemer and that that would filter down in our relationships, whether it's in marriage or in work or friendships or parenting or grandparenting or whatever situation we may be in now or may be in the future. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, our Redeemer, and we thank you that he forgives our sins and that we have the hope and confidence of eternal life through him and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you look in your order of service, you see the benediction, which I'll ask you to stand for, and then we'll remain standing as we sing the doxology. Receive God's blessing. Now may grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.